Hello and welcome to South Beach Sessions, doing it a little bit differently over the course of a few episodes here. Want you to get to know the man who is now running our dysfunctional little family here, the CEO of Metal Arc Media, John Skipper, my friend. Over many episodes, we are going to show you who the new CEO is, and this is the second of those episodes from the first. If you have not caught the first, you can get it, but if you have caught the first, I thought this one was better than the first one in terms of telling you what it is that we're going to lay out here in front of you as we build out the pirate ship. Here is our friend and the new CEO, John Skipper. First, in terms of messaging, there are a lot of people here, a lot of sports media reporters who are interested in what the hell you and I are doing together because nobody knows anything. In fact, you and I have only talked around the fringes of some of this stuff that we're doing. So this is the first glimpse some people are getting into this and into you because they don't really know you. You, for all of your power, you can have some anonymity because it's not a face that's on television a whole lot. Yeah, it's funny. I used to believe that I had the greatest job in the world in which I was never recognized in public. And that was actually a quite a great luxury, right? I've been with you and I've seen both the joy you get from encountering some of your fans and community, but also the, I've seen with a number of people I worked with, the sort of interruption that that provides your ordinary life. I never had that ordinary life interrupted. I'm thrilled to be able to come on and have a direct conversation and then relationship with your fans. One of the things that excites me the most about being with you is that I know that your legion of followers, friends, colleagues has a special relationship with you. And I want to make sure, and it's one of the reasons we're doing these podcasts, is that I want to make sure that audience understands what we're doing, understands why I believe we're going to use what you're doing to leap off and form an even bigger venture. I've been asked if this was a venture or an adventure, and I believe it is in fact both. If we want to simply describe what we're doing, we're forming a company. That company is going to be focused at least initially on sports content. That company is called Metalark. What we're going to do is across all genres of sports, try to create best in class content, whether that be your radio show, the Lebertards and Friends podcast, highly questionable television show, could be scripted and unscripted reality or dramatic or comedic episodic content, could be documentaries, could be feature stories, could be books. We want wherever great stories are, we want to tell them in a multitude of genres. We are not, however, going to publish them on a platform that's called Meadowlark. What we want to do is to sell them to third parties. And in doing so and in creating a pipeline of those projects, executing them, selling them. We want to become known as the supplier of choice, the standard bearer for what it means to create sports content. If you ask people who makes the best animated movies, they say Pixar. If you ask people who makes the greatest sports content out of an independent entity, it's very difficult to think of any names. And that comes in the midst of a moment where there's this extraordinary global bull market in content. There's a void in great companies 
providing that content to the Netflixes, Hulus, Disney, dare I say ESPN, NBC Comcast, HBO Max, BBC Sky. There are a lot of companies that need content. We think sports is generally underrepresented on those platforms. We're going to make that content for them. So you're a visionary. For those of you who don't understand, you see things that others have not seen. You don't get to the position you were in in sports by accident. So when I ask you, why would you sort of lessen your role at zone in a big job, a big sports rights company? What is it that you're seeing here that is value at this time? Now, obviously, you love me and you love us, but you're seeing an opportunity here, are you not? I am indeed sometimes accused of seeing things that other people don't see. Sometimes uh, it could be an hallucination, and yes, maybe occasionally it's a revelation about where things might be going. I think it's clear right now that things are going towards streaming services. It was a great pleasure to serve as the executive chairman of DAZN. As you point out, I'm going to remain the chairman non-operating of DAZN for some period of time. What I do see is this great void for creating this kind of content, and I saw it at the largest global sports streaming service. While we had lots of live rights, we also needed content to complement that. So that helped me see the need there. I am grateful for that. I'm happy to be continuing to have some relationship with that while I do this. Yes, I am doing this partly because I can do it with my friend, and I hope that you and I will continue to include other friends. I want to have fun. You did point out that you thought this might be my last venture. I hope it is my last venture. I've had the great pleasure of being at Rolling Stone during its halcyon days, Spin Magazine, Disney Publishing, the Walt Disney Company, ESPN during great days at ESPN was dramatic fun, great creative opportunity, great financial success. I merely helped to sort of build upon what lots of people before me had done at all those places. I did often believe that I understood sort of where things in media trends might be going. Think about the magazine, the largest sports magazine for years and years and years was Sports Illustrated. Mattered the most to me when I grew up in terms of sports. What we were able to see there is with the dawn of the internet and with the ubiquity of Sports Center, having a news magazine about sports that had happened in the last week was obsolete. It didn't matter. You got all of the information somewhere else. And at that point, reading Sports Illustrated was a habit, not an affection and a necessity. We created a magazine at ESPN. You were there. The first issue we had was called Next because we thought we understood what a magazine in sports could do next. And that was to talk about the future, to to take culture and the world around it and mix it with sports. This notion that sports exists in some kind of vacuum bubble where the collision of, of mighty men and women, you know, is an end and means up to itself seemed kind of anachronistic to us then. So we created this new magazine that was a big magazine like Rolling Stone. That's not a coincidence with great photography, graphics, typography, a different kind of sports magazine. Remember, we uh, at one point, Dan, referred to maps and maps stood for meaningless action photographs, which was if we were doing a story on uh, Ricky Williams, which you wrote for us and which we put on the cover, 
putting a picture of Ricky Williams running down the field in a New Orleans Saints uniform was a meaningless action photograph. It didn't tell you anything new. What would tell you something new was spectacular, insightful, or clever, comedic photography. And we did that. So, yeah, I think that was a moment where you saw something in the future. I went to ESPN.com and the sports internet sites were about scores and highlights in HTML text. And I thought that the internet could be a place for long form journalism and analysis and commentary and great writers. So we invented page two, which had David Halberstam and Bill Simmons and Ralph Wiley and Hunter S. Thompson. So I don't know. It's what people care about, as the great Steve Jobs says, is what they don't know they want. And it is a wonderful thing sometimes to sort of think you're often wrong. Sometimes you're right. That's about my batting average. But uh, when you get it right and go, oh, I think this is what people might like. They don't know they would like it. But um, I think that's a wonderful phenomenon. Here, I think that lots and lots of these companies and platforms don't know that they need more sports. Sports really, really, really matters to people. And I think when you go on these services, you want to see more sports. I think that you're entering a place where a lot of the traditional sports media companies are, I think, to a degree beyond what is necessary. They want to stick to sports and only the sports events. And I think there's going to be an opportunity for somebody else to make that content that complements the sports experience, that connects it to the culture and society of our of our country and the world. Keep in mind, over several episodes here, you will hear from this man who is building this so that you can understand better what this story is and what this company is. And when he says that Metal Ark Media is the story of the songbird ushering in a story to greet a new dawn. That is what we are going for. But is it too ambitious, John, to say that you think we, us, this is next? Oh, I think this is next. I mean, that's why we're trying to do this. And that we do think we are going to get to be that songbird that greets the new dawn. And uh, I think we can build a great company. There are in most areas, there is a standard bearer, somebody that everybody else aspires to be. I do not get a great answer as I go around and ask people, who's the standard bearer? Who would you call to create that great documentary or to create that great next form storytelling? Look, for years, we must give credit where credit is due, and that is to my and your previous employer. I think to some extent, this has not arisen because ESPN has been such a dominant force in the world of sports in the United States. It's been splendid, the amount of great content that's come out of there. But there's lots of need for lots of great content that is not on ESPN. And uh, we're going to create that. And by the way, I'm unabashed at at my admiration and and my respect for uh, how I was treated at ESPN and how would love to create some content from them. So this is what I'd like to do over the course of several episodes here. I want to talk about you biographically. I want to talk about the industry uh, because you have some keen insights there. I want to do some stuff with you where we cover some of the accomplishments and some of the things you've done, some of the difficult things that have arisen in your career. So let us begin here. 
where do you think this entire business is going? Because it's changed a lot since even you were at ESPN and it wasn't that long ago. Things seem to be changing really fast. I'm curious, you as a leader in this industry, why didn't it seem like too many people noticed that cord cutting was coming? Like it feels like that was something that escaped some people's attention somehow. Yeah, I'm not sure it escaped people's attention. I think that some people may have wanted to deny it because the world they lived in was pretty amazing. It is possible that the greatest business model for a media entity ever in existence was ESPN at about 2012, because that's when corporate cutting began. But at that point, you had most of the American households buying a paid television subscription and 95% of those people got ESPN and ESPN received a monthly distribution fee per subscriber. That was about four or five times what the next most valuable service got. And add to that, you still had not had the disruption of Facebook and Google in the advertising market. And it was still the heyday of the 32nd branded commercial. And there was no more attractive audience than a sports audience of large groups of disproportionately populated by young adult males who are very attracted to advertisers. So you could sell mass amounts of advertising. You collected those distribution fees and nobody else really followed ESPN's lead. The other sports media companies remained essentially broadcast weekend distributors of live sports while ESPN had the playing field, bad pun intended, to itself for shocking numbers of years. But it has happened. And when you talk about the dramatically changing landscape, it's not sports. It's all of the way that people consume their entertainment, right? Roughly speaking, there are kind of four major big buckets of entertainment. There's music, there's general entertainment, comedies and dramas and that traditionally lived on the broadcast networks and then moved to Netflix and other places. Then there's news and there's sports. Well, you already had the music transition has happened. There are no more hard goods, right? People don't buy other than quirky individuals, including myself. People don't buy CDs. I don't buy CDs. I buy records still. They get all their music on streaming services. There's a second wave happening, which is that now that there are established music streaming services, they need to differentiate themselves. So they're adding podcasts. Radio still exists, live streaming radio. My understanding is that possibly the best current live radio happens at 8 to 11 in the morning on Dan LeBetard's show. That's with right. Stuga. That's right. I just hear it. It lured, uh, it lured a big guy out of a, uh, you know, uh, out of a big job. It lured, it, there was something happening over here that caught his attention. Something. Uh, but that happened in music. It's now happening in general entertainment. Disney Plus, Hulu, Netflix. And then just last year, you had HBO Max launch, Peacock, Discovery Plus just announced their intention to create a big streaming service. So everybody's going to get all their content. Sports will be last because it's complicated technologically to do live streaming to huge concurrent audiences. But at zone, I got to see firsthand that that is what's going to happen. It's already happened in Japan. It's happened in Germany and Italy. It's going to happen in the U.S., three to five, six years after the current round of sports rights deals 
they'll move to streaming and that's going to create an overwhelming demand for content as all these players vie for dominance or share of market or just try to survive. And, uh, we hope to supply content for all of those categories. So, John, what bit of information do you have now that you would have loved to have had in 2012? What could I have told you in 2012 that you would have been like, yeah, I need to be out in front on this that you know now nine years later? Well, if you could have predicted the exact arc of decline for pay television, it would have been helpful, though it is a misrepresentation to suggest that the people in charge of the Walt Disney Company and ESPN didn't see it coming. We were, we had the most information of anybody. We had the most stake of anybody. The question is not, can you predict the future? We could not predict it exactly, but this is not surprising. What is hard to figure is, what do you do about it? And there were, of course, lots and lots of critics who were like, don't they understand what the future is? And the answer is, we do, not exactly. I think isn't the expression maybe from Revelation that you see through a glass darkly? We saw through a glass darkly, so we could see what was going to happen, but not in all of its granularity. And what people who were critical seemed not to understand was it was the most profitable, ESPN was, media entity in the history of the world. And you don't suddenly go, gee, I've been making caramel colored soda water for years and years at the Coca-Cola company. And gee, people now sort of think that they want to eat and drink healthier and, you know, having all that sugar and something, not a good thing. But what do you do? Quit making it and go dip a bucket in a well and sell water because it's healthier. And you know, that's the future. You just don't do that, including you're at a public company, which has as its obligation the responsibility to return value to shareholders so you don't go, gee, guys, hold on for a decade. You won't see dividends and your stock won't go up, but trust us, the world's changing and we're going to get ahead of it. You don't want to get too far ahead of trends because then you're just too early. Lots of smart businesses are too early. I think that the Walt Disney Company, and again, I had my disagreements with them and I ultimately parted company my responsibility, not theirs. But I actually, when you look at a company that is doing it the right way, they are. I guess you could say you can predict the future, but you can't necessarily prevent the future is the distinction that you are making. And the thing that you didn't mention there in terms of why it is this was such a profitable business is that the grand majority of the people paying for ESPN weren't watching ESPN, correct? Like that is the great secret in the business model is that 120 million people were paying for something and 110 million of them largely weren't watching it. Oh, no, that's not, that's, uh, I would say my friend is a slight misrepresentation of reality. First of all, there were about 95 million households at the peak paying for ESPN. And you are correct that in any one moment in time, 90 plus percent of those people weren't watching. So you are, you are accurate. However, that wasn't really the point. The point was of those 95 million households, how many of them thought that ESPN was the most valuable thing they got? And the answer was that no channel was more important than ESPN. And what matters is not to the distributors, not, oh, 95 million people are paying. And at this moment in time, only 3 million people are watching. It is how many of those 95 million people would cancel their subscription 
if they didn't have this channel available. You understand the distinction. So ESPN earned that money. And the beauty of the business model was what we did was we got great content all year long, all the time. So there was no moment in time at which the consumer could think about cutting it off because, gee, it's August. Well, here comes the opening college football weekend. That can't be missed. And here comes the NFL season on Monday Night Football. That can't be missed. And here comes the NBA, and that can't be remissed. And by the way, before that, there's the U.S. Open Tennis, and it's the only place I can watch. So I uh, quarreled dramatically with anyone who suggested at the time that, gee, they're getting somehow their disproportionate share. I would have friends. I was on the board of the cable television industry, and it would be populated by other people from other networks. And um, there were friends of mine. There were smart people. There were good people. And they'd go, it's outrageous that um, you guys are getting so much money. Our ratings are just as high as your ratings. And I'm like, I know they are. But if your network goes down next week, millions of people don't cancel their subs. If ESPN goes down next week, they do. What was the hardest part of that job that you had? What would you identify as the single hardest part? Or, and I don't know if this is the same question, what part of that job don't you miss? Because you might have liked some of the hard stuff. I would say the scale of the job, Dan. It just, we were doing near the end of my tenure, 85, 90,000 hours of television a year. And since there are only 8,760 hours in the year, that is eight or 10 hours for every hour. You can't watch it. You can't keep up with it. The physical demands of trying to answer the emails, answer the phone calls, I probably was a little bit too much. I don't mind being hands-on. I just don't want hands-on everything. So I've probably had hands-on too many things and it deprived me and it was my choice. It was my choice to deprive myself of, of deeper friendships, deprive myself. I missed some things with my family. I didn't have any hobbies. I was running around kind of like a, a meadowlark in a whirlwind blown hither and thither. And, uh, I didn't, one, stop to enjoy it enough. I missed other things, and I never quite, quite figured out how to manage to have some kind of work-life balance. We became friends more deeply after I left. There were more than one reason for that, but it started with when I was there, I didn't have time for friendships, right? Bill Simmons, who I regard as a friend, speaks eloquently about, gee, John was my supporter and we did things together. And suddenly as he, he ascended in the company, he wasn't there for me and couldn't be. And he understood it, but it, it made it difficult. And that was true with everybody. I'd walk down the halls in Bristol and people would say, did you see the show last night? And I'd be like, Oh my gosh. You know, there happened to be, we had about nine networks, I think. 
There were nine at the same time. Right. Well, uh, we kept getting in trouble, John, because nobody was actually listening to our radio show. The only time that we would get in trouble is when some blog put a headline on something, and then all of a sudden the executives were getting the story. It was very clear. John, I got suspended for putting up billboards on LeBron James in Akron when I'd been talking about it for 10 days on the radio, and the reason I got suspended, I was told, is because we didn't give anybody a heads up, and I'm like... We were talking about it for 10 days on the radio. Like, what do you mean I didn't give anybody a heads up? Well, you know, my predicament was the same predicament with the other executives at the network. ESPN had a very lean management structure. And you're right. Nobody can watch everything, listen to everything. And, of course, you know that radio is harder to keep up with than television, right? I had televisions on in my office all the time but they had the sound off. And so I kind of could see what was happening, but I couldn't hear it. Putting up radio in the office uh, was an impossibility because, you know, it would have been, you know, like being at a cocktail party and trying to conduct business, particularly with your show. So, yeah. And, and by the way, print probably is even more obscure. We knew on ESPN.com, at one point on ESPN.com, we were publishing a thousand pages of content a day. A thousand pages. So, no, nobody read it. And, of course, we had many people who didn't do much reading to start with. So we knew when I was just at ESPN.com, which I was for a couple of years, I knew I was never going to get in trouble because nobody was reading it. So I can uh, share your both amusement, bemusement, and uh, predicament. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. <music> I'd like to tell people about your history, where it is you came from, how it is you arrived at ESPN, and we will get to that over the course of several episodes here. But what are you proudest of having done at ESPN? If you could just name a handful of things that give you the greatest source of pride, they would be what? Affording the opportunity to be on television to a wider range of people than had been empowered before. It was a priority of mine that we would change the complexion, literally, and the gender. And we succeeded spectacularly. ESPN was the leader in diversifying the sports media world. And when you look at the number of people who came to the network, again, both behind the camera, on air, on the mic, in the magazine, on the internet, I'm quite proud of having done that. It's a long litany of people. Wouldn't be far behind that would be the aggregation of sports rights, right? When I got, I became the chief content officer in 2005 with the blessing and support of uh, my then boss, George Bodenheimer, we decided that the best way to build ESPN was on live sports rights. And we were going to be very aggressive at aggregating rights. And I had the Great privilege to participate in buying all of the U.S. Open tennis and all of Wimbledon tennis and buying all but one game of the SEC, buying every 
sports contest for the ACC, renewing uh, the uh, NFL Monday Night Football package, getting a big package of regular season games for the NBA, getting for the first time 100 baseball games on the air. So I loved aggregating those rights. And then I'm quite proud of all the content initiatives. Be hard not to start with 30 for 30. ESPN was not in the documentary business. They'd done really, really good work on Sports Century, sort of chronicling, sort of historical look at different subjects. But in terms of really making films, 30 for 30 marked a new standard. And it, it is now the standard for documentary filmmaking and story sports telling. And Simmons and Grantland was pretty spectacular. 538 with Nate Silver, The Undefeated, which Kevin Merritt helped me start, really allowed different kinds of voices and brought different kinds of content to ESPN. We established uh, ESPN.com as the largest internet site in the world, largest sports site. You know, I'm proud of many, many things. Of course, they didn't happen singularly. They happened collectively with a whole bunch of people. So I don't miss they were my accomplishments. They were the company's accomplishments with lots of people. And the accomplishments were, were pretty significant. Those are a few. And I'm sure launching the magazine, by the way, I'll answer a question you didn't ask, but which is a, a question next door, which is what are the things you are most proud of and were the most fun? Man, launching the magazine was fun. We were in New York City in some cool offices with smart people, a diverse collection of talent, and we got to sit in an office and uh, make up a new magazine. That was really fun. Being in Seattle and doing ESPN.com, really fun. Launching your television show in Miami, one of the highlights of my career. I felt that ESPN was a little too Bristol-centric, and I could never get you away from the damn Miami Herald. We hired you as a sports columnist at uh, ESPN Magazine, I think in 1998. He'd been to Herald a couple of years, and that began, I think, what was about a, a decade-long effort by me to get you to come work full-time. Yes, I for played hard to get with Skipper, who doesn't get a lot of no, the most powerful executive in sports. I played hard to get. How hard was it to get this thing built in Miami? Because I'm convinced that no one at Disney knows where this actually is. Because if anyone at Disney showed up and saw the, where we are, I feel like, I think they'd flee the premises and say, what the hell, who, who, who said this was okay? Well, there's two couple funny things about that. You're man, you did play hard to get, but look, you were hard to get because, um, and this will slightly embarrass you. You were extremely loyal and cared about being a Cuban American, a Hispanic voice in Miami. And you cared about the community and the people there and felt like you had, almost an obligation to stay and be that. And I kept trying, not because I wanted to pull you away from Miami. I did it because I felt like you could do the same thing in the entire country. And I can remember being somewhere with you and you were like, well, I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to move. I don't want to do this. And I said, I tell you what, Dan, how about I put you, oh, you were doing the show from somewhere out, I think in the arts district of Miami and you had a terrible commute and I was still trying to get you to come to ESPN full-time. I said, how about this? How about we put a studio on South Beach and you can walk to work and you can put your father on the show. <laughs> and uh, 
I can't remember what else we did. Yeah, my brother doing the art. No, made, you, no, you kept throwing things on the table that were impossible to say no to is what you did. And then I remember I was told by somebody in Bristol that somebody else in Bristol had said, there's no ever putting a studio in Miami. We got a lot of studio space in Bristol and it's crazy to do that. And that angered me because I wanted to do it. And, you know, there's something called a pocket veto. And that is when you're a leader and you tell somebody to do something, they put it in their pocket. Uh, I just don't do it because they disagree. They're not willing to tell you they disagree or think it's crazy, but you just never hear about it again. So I forget who I called, but I called somebody and said, I want to find a studio in Miami. I want to find it in the next week and we're going to do it. And I do not really want to have any more discussion. Please get it done. And as you know, it happened very quick after that. And you were in the Clevelander Hotel in the not many days after that, because I wanted to have an authentic show from Miami, let people know it's from Miami as a signal that we were the country sports network, not the New England country's net sports network, but the whole country. That's why I wanted to you know, be more overt that PTI was coming from Washington, D.C. And I wanted, and we did during my tenure, this was not highly opposed. We did in my tenure open up big offices next to the Staples Center in L.A. I felt like we needed not to be, you know, tagged with, you know, there are these people up in New England who spend all their time arguing about the Yankees and the Red Sox. How did you experience, I want to go through your points of pride at ESPN one by one. So you're proud of having diversified the voices, and then you look up, and people have already reported that you and I right now are forming a left-leaning company, and you and I haven't actually talked about any left-leaning things. All you've done is join forces with someone who's a minority, and now we've both become a left-leaning company, even though we haven't had those conversations. So when that was weaponized, when Trump, when basically ESPN became a political organization, it might have happened with Caitlyn Jenner, I don't know, but when it became a political organization, your reaction was what? Were you surprised by it? Well, first of all, we didn't become a political no, organization. Accused, it's accused, a accused, excuse me, you are accused immediately of becoming, it must have been weird to you. Hell, Trump himself did it. I don't know if you were there at the time, but Trump himself was basically coming after ESPN because it was easy to, and it was because you had put, you know, Jamel and Michael on SportsCenter 6. We weren't doing anything overtly political. What we were trying to do was draw talent from all places where there are talented people and try to empower people who otherwise would not have been empowered. I don't think that's a political statement. It's interesting to me that it is sometimes seen as a political statement. We also felt like there ought to be tolerance for all human beings. Again, oh my gosh, how did that become political? Whether you think it's peculiar or admirable, I happen to think it's admirable that somebody discovers late in life who they are and fully invest themselves in that. When we honored Caitlyn Jenner, that's what we were trying to honor. Be yourself, assuming you're not hurting somebody else. Why does somebody else object? Why is that political? And of course, the answer is that people can weaponize that action, make you the adversary, and create support for themselves with people who are similarly mistrustful of people who aren't like them. 
or similarly intolerant. And it's just a mischaracterization. And the far right in this country is quite skilled at labeling things. And suddenly it's the radical ESPN. It's silly. We were trying to do the right human things. And it's at this point, it's a badge of honor for me to have been attacked by this president who made it a four-year reign, not of good government and stewardship of our country. And I'm going to be the president of all the country. It became a four-year reign of polarization, mischaracterization, mocking of people who are different, racism, misrepresentation, mendaciousness, and it's, it's abominable. It's one of the other things, Dan, that you and I want to do in this, in this company is we want to be able to be who we are. And again, I'm not going to allow myself to be mischaracterized by simpletons who, you know, think the world is, is uh, by the way, I started to say divided black and white. I think that's kind of how they'd like to divide the world and uh, who aren't respectful of their fellow human beings. Maybe I, maybe I just made a mistake by calling them simpletons. I should be respectful. They're human beings. They feel about things differently than I do, but I do not misrepresent their point of view. I will explain to the audience a couple of things about who you are and why it is that I never wanted to work for Disney. I wanted to work for this man and the things that he believed in and the things that he empowered me to do in ways that were obvious and meaningful because he handed down his privilege. And if you saw what we were doing, you saw that we were doing his work the entire time at ESPN, elevating people who might not have had the same kinds of voices to be themselves and to play in this sandbox and to enjoy themselves. But how and why did you become that way? Where are the landmarks? Why and when did this stuff become important to you? Was it during the rebellious Rolling Stone days or was it some other time? Where do you point to in your childhood, in your upbringing, in your work, where you're like, these are the things that formed my viewpoints here? Um, I grew up in North Carolina. I was fortunate to be raised by lovely people, my mom and dad. They were tolerant people. They believed in a time where it was not easy to do so that we ought to accept other people and who they were and not make judgments because they had a different skin color or because they had a, a sexual orientation that was different than the majority. And that was lucky for me, but I was raised that way. And I was raised in a circumstance which some people want to suggest is far, far in the past. It's not, it was in my lifetime. I grew up in segregation. I spent the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth grades in a segregated school with white people uh, and the black people in Lexington, North Carolina, went to a separate school, not because we made those choices or they made those choices, because it was the law. It was the law. You could not play basketball on the same court when I was nine years old. You could not sit in the same portion of a restaurant. You could not drink from the same water fountain. And I don't know, I've raised my own children. And what I do know from that is to some extent, you are who you are when you are born. You know, if you're, you start out and you're stubborn, you're probably gonna be somewhat stubborn your whole life. You can learn, but it's hard to change who you are. I do believe because of the influence of my parents, 
and from some benevolent something, I grew up believing that I should be tolerant. I should let other people be other people. I'm not particularly doctrinally religious, but I do believe in something that is in the New Testament. Despite not being religious, I do believe I've read more of the Bible than lots of people who proclaim their religion. And I believe it is in John that they say, love, faith, and hope are the greatest, greatest characteristics. I'm misquoting, but love is the greatest of all these. And somewhere in there says something to the order that you should treat others as you would like to be treated. That seems like uh, it is called the New Testament. And by the way, I'm not preaching, but the New Testament is the new paradigm for how human beings should treat each other, which stands in contrast to the Old Testament, which was the testament of a different world. This was the testament that was supposed to lead people to figure out how to get along. And I believe that while not believing in the sort of organized religious part of it. And my parents had great influence. And living in a segregated society, I think I understood how hurtful and how painful that was. Again, I grew up, and I've told this many times, I grew up in a society where if a 10-year-old white boy was walking down the sidewalk and a an adult black man was walking towards him, that adult black man had to avert his eyes, get out of the way, and humiliate himself in order not to run afoul of the mores of the of the time. So anyway, I think sort of that sort of formed me. And then, you know, I went to work in New York in 1978, and I didn't know it exactly at the time, but it was an intolerant environment. Women were mistreated and uh, were verbally harassed on a sort of regular basis. And I grew up in a time where when you looked at who the CEOs of the Fortune 500 companies were and who the boards, still true, some large extent, all came from the same damn place. And uh, it doesn't seem right. And by the way, I grew up a very, very proud American and continue to think, though I think we've got some corrective action to take, that it's the greatest, freest, most productive place in the world. It's the greatest place to be. I remember fondly, and I think post-Berlin Wall, there was a point in time where if you'd asked the seven and a half billion, I think that's about right, maybe a little different, inhabitants of the world, gee, if you had to go somewhere else in the world, so maybe you're asking everybody except Americans, where would you go? And the overwhelming plurality of them would have said, I want to go to the United States. That's where you can be free and find success and take care of your family. And that's what your parents did, Dan. They left Cuba and came to Miami, made a life for themselves, have a son who made a success for himself, two sons uh, who made a success for themselves, had freedom. And I think it's what bothers both you and I is, you know, to what extent have the past four years tarnished that? We were the shining light on the hill. That's what John Calvin said. I think it was 17th century Massachusetts that the America is a shining city on the hill. And I think that's what we should be. I think when we are that, we are tolerant. And everybody gets to live on the hill not just the people who uh, came from Western Europe and whose skin is pale. Your father was a postman, right? You grew up without very much money, correct? Well, we never thought of as growing up without much money. Uh, But my dad, yeah, my dad, for most of my childhood, was a walking mailman. He was the guy in the light blue shirt and those dark blue trousers with a pair of skinny legs like mine with a leather satchel on his shoulder who brought you you know, your mail. And my mom 
who grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, was multitasking, very talented woman who was a seamstress for people to make money. She was a very good watercolor painter and gave painting lessons. She, without an accounting degree, did taxes for people in our house. And my parents were the embodiment of the American dream. My father was a veteran of World War II, came home. The uh, GI Bill allowed him to get a job in the civil service, which was the post office. They made a better life. And my brother and I were first generation college. We both went to the University of North Carolina, an opportunity my parents did not have, but which they made available to us. So anyone who wants to suggest that I'm not a patriot, that I'm not an American, that I don't love the flag, I do. And uh, I was raised with that. And my parents were patriots, but they wanted this country to be that shining city on a hill. That's my ambition for this country as well. Again, I spent a lot of the last year in Europe working for a company based in London, zone And you run into a lot of people who wonder what's happened to this country. Uh, I find myself in the frequent position of defending it and suggesting that we're in a moment of aberration and that we will be that city again. By the way, I live in that city now. I do think New York is to some extent a bit of that city. We live in New York. Nobody expects to look around and not see people from everywhere in the world of all caste and colors and, and ethnicities and, and sexual orientations. I live in West, I live in Greenwich Village and uh, I see a lot less judgment than I do other places. People in lots of parts of the country like to make fun of New York. I think New York is a pretty spectacular place. I think Miami is a pretty spectacular place. People get along in Miami. Do they get along perfectly? No. But is it, uh, is it where we should be? It's where we should be going. I hope you're enjoying listening to John Skipper as much as I am. Some of these questions that I'm asking him, I have not asked him in our friendship, and it is rare to sort of get to see the insides of what being the most powerful man in sports used to feel like. And so now he's coming over here and running this ragtag outfit. We will have parts three and four for you if you like what it is you've heard. If you want to bail on this, I certainly understand. If you think it's self-involved, if you think it's too much, look at me. But I want you to understand the nature of this partnership. And so we're introducing a guy in four parts. And I don't think we've ever done this in any more than two parts before when something with Bob Costas or Dan Patrick is really good. So if you want to hear parts three and four of South Beach Sessions with John Skipper, those are coming out next week. And we ask you again to support all the Lebetard and Friends properties, Stupidity, Mystery Crate, the Lebetard and Friends Podcast Network, and of course the radio show, Dan Lebetard Show with Stugatz, that soon hopefully will be Dan Lebetard and Stugatz, and might not be a radio show, might be just a podcast. I might not be calling it radio show very much longer. Who knows? John Skipper will be deciding parts three and four with him next week. Again, a reminder, please rate, subscribe, and review. Thank you. 